Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's Auditor General Bonnie Lissick will be looking into the costs of Hamilton's LRT project after its cancellation. According to a Conservative insider, Pierre Polivare may be the most likely candidate to replace Andrew Scheer. And a small group of dedicated citizens may have an alternative to the LRT project. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Auditor General is stepping in now at the request of NDP leader and opposition leader Andrea Horvath. Last week, uh, she sent a letter to the Auditor General asking her to look into the Hamilton LRT project costs. I'm not quite sure exactly what that's going to look like when it's all done or even what the ramifications are going to be, but still, I, I think the biggest story in, in, in Hamilton anyway, especially from a political standpoint. Ryan McGill joins us to talk about this. He, of course, is editor of Raise the Hammer. Ryan, uh, thanks for joining us. Great to have you on the show today. Absolutely, Bill. It's a pleasure. I just want to put this in perspective. We just had a discussion about this last week. I mean, this is a year that gave us sewage gate, uh, that gave us the fiasco on the Red Hill Parkway with the, the, the surface and on uh, the, the new arena or not new arena. With it. But this this cancellation of, of the LIT project, I think without a doubt, is, is the number one story because I think it's going to be the most impactful for Hamilton. Well, 2019 is certainly the gift that keeps on giving. Oh yeah, uh, and I and I and I can't think of a more 2019 way for 2019 to end. So, <laughs> uh, but you know what? Um, this is this is Hamilton uh, in Hamilton politics. Um, I believe follows CFL rules, where um, it's never over, even when it seems like it's over, and the score can always change right down to the last second. So. I haven't given up hope about Hamilton's LRT yet, and I don't think Hamiltonians should either. Well, and Joe Mancinelli mentioned that on the show last week, that he's doing his own investigation into the finances of this. Uh, and the Auditor General, we know, is going to do this. Uh, Michael Cotto, one of the uh, hopefuls for the Liberal leadership here in Ontario, says he's going to get somebody to do some investigation. So uh, at the end of all of this stuff, I guess we're going to have some new numbers here, Ryan. But, uh, you know, the overriding question is, is it going to do any good? You know what would be the best way to get the actual numbers of what it's going to cost to build and operate the system. How's that? Just wait three months, let the bidding process conclude, and allow the three companies that are competitively bidding to build and operate the system to present their final numbers. Because we were literally that close after 12 years of getting the actual numbers, not some number that was cooked up by an entity that we're not allowed to know about using methods that we're not allowed to observe. The the uh, the Minister Mulroney's uh, numbers are outrageously um, implausible. You know, LRT systems usually cost around $60 million a kilometer to build. Uh, according to her calculations, Hamilton's is going to cost $250 million to build. Uh, just for comparison, Ottawa's Confederation LRT, which has a two-and-a-half-kilometer subway tunnel, is only costing $160 million a kilometer to build. So these numbers are impractical, and it would be very, very easy to get the real numbers by allowing the three consortiums who are experts in this to finish doing their calculations and present their bids. Uh, you know, So we're calling on Premier Ford to step in, fix this mistake, and allow the process to finish unfolding. We're so close to the end. But, Ryan, this is not unlike what this government has done. I mean, let's remember also, this is the same government that canceled the living wage program after promising to keep it uh, during the election campaign. One of the first things they did was cancel it before there was any data on it. They said it wasn't working effectively. They don't seem to want information. They simply just want to do something about the bottom line on all these programs. That seems to be the mantra. Sure, and at the same time, uh, they do seem to respond to uh, to negative feedback when you know when they make these kind of knee-jerk decisions. Uh, you know, the classic example would be their the way they meddled with the uh, autism support program. Yeah, exactly. You know, and they received this avalanche of of outrage from parents of uh, autistic children saying, "You can't do this." Well, now they've backpedaled 
uh, they've doubled the funding envelope and uh, and are planning to bring these programs back. So this is a government that moves quickly, uh, sometimes breaks things unnecessarily, but they do ha- they have shown an ability to change course and to reverse bad decisions that are wildly unpopular. Uh, and in light of that, Hamilton Light Rail, which is a volunteer organization that I'm part of, we are calling on Premier Ford to uh, step in, fix Minister, Minister Mulroney's mistake, and get this project back on track. I, it was the whole. It was a week ago today. Obviously, this whole thing uh, kind of unraveled when uh, the minister announced she was going to have a, a press conference here in town, which is bizarre in and of itself. Usually, if you're going to another city to announce a press conference, it's usually good news. I mean, you don't tell them that. By the way, you're not going to get your LRT. Usually, you make that at the back at Queens Park, and then you just kind of shuffle back into your office and shut the door. Uh, but it was, and we know already, it was a rather surreal experience last week. The whole process was. But the rationale for this, and you bang on about the numbers. I mean, everybody was just wide-eyed when they saw that. Where did that come from? Uh, but the rash also suggesting, the minister suggesting that, well, there were there were sources within the city here that says that uh, that it wasn't the right thing to do. Well, there, there's no lack of, of opposition to this. We get that. But this is, this is a, a program that was promised to us by the previous government, but that promise was reiterated by Doug Ford. I mean, after Fred Eisenberger got reelected, you remember the quote, if Fred wants an LRT, Fred's going to get an LRT. So what went wrong? Sure. And even before that, um, you know, uh, uh, when, when Doug Ford was running to be premier, he said, look, Hamilton LRT is going to be great for the economy. It's going to be countless jobs and new development and investment. He seems to understand that there's an argument here. And like you said, after the election, when Mayor Fred won a commanding majority on a unabashedly pro-LRT campaign against uh, his, his number one opponent, his entire campaign was about cancelling the LRT instead. So there's, there's no argument. You know, obviously, this, this project doesn't have 100% support. No project ever does. But it is widely supported. And the sense that I'm getting from, you know, again, you, you pointed out this sort of uh, strange uh, absolutely absurd setup to last week's announcement. I wonder if maybe Mulroney thought that she was making a good news story and that it was going to be received positively. You know, if so, I would have to wonder where is she getting information from. You know, who in the in Hamilton is telling the Minister of Transportation that we all hate LRT and don't want it because obviously that was bad information and it's resulted in them making a bad decision. That's an interesting take on that, and and you may well be right that, that maybe the she anticipated she was going to be met with cheers instead of jeers uh, for doing this sort of a thing. And I, I think that's probably what shocked her and her staff uh, when they looked outside and they saw the pro-LRT people that were basically saying, hey, don't do this to us. Because, I mean, by that time, the, the speculation was rampant that uh, that they were going to pull the rug out from under this. But but you're absolutely right. There is no unanimity in, in major projects like this. The, the expressway b- debate, which went on for 45 years, uh, there was still support, not overwhelming support, but the, the consensus was is the good thing for this community. I think maybe the most telling comment, and it was something Joe Mancinelli mentioned last week in the program, Ryan, is he said what hurts most of all is that we were not consulted. They didn't sit down with the stakeholders, and, and Leuna and others are stakeholders as well as the city, and and say, look, we got a problem here. Let's let's talk about how we can resolve this. They just they just made a, a decision without much of a, a well, no consultation, but without much consultation and and very little factual evidence to support their decision. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the, the, the way this decision was made was quite poor. The decision itself, obviously, was quite poor as well. Um, I don't know what kind of information they're operating from, but based on, you know, I'm not an expert, but, you know, the people who are experts are looking at these numbers and saying, these numbers make no sense. I mean, even if you add up the operating costs over 30 years, you're looking at $65 million a year. I mean, are the drivers going to be getting paid, you know, 
half a million dollars a year to drive these things. Like, it's a crazy, crazy, outrageous set of numbers, and nobody takes them very seriously. So where do we go from here? Uh, we are going to get these numbers, and and I guess, you know, if that's going to be step one, step two is going to be, I, I guess, trying to get the province to come to the table and say, can we talk about this? Uh, because invariably, any other work that the Auditor General has done to do with government expenses uh, is usually just sloughed off by the government. Sure, yeah, and I, I think really this is a government that responds to loud, clear uh, communication from, from people. So Hamiltonians need to make a point of saying to this province, uh, we expect you to come back to the table. You've made a mistake. We expect you to fix it. Uh, if you go to hamiltonlightrail.ca, we have a call to action there. You can fill out uh, a very simple form, just make a short personal message telling Premier Ford to come in here and fix this mistake, and it will get sent to the Premier, to local MPs and MPPs, and it will get copied to Council. So they need to hear a groundswell of support for LRT. They need to understand that whoever told them, oh, people don't want it, it's a mistake, you're going to be greeted as liberators, you know, if you'll forgive the, uh, the reference, um, that that was wrong. And there, there's an opportunity now for them to, you know, there's still time for them to fix this, to get those three consortia back to the table and finish that process. What about timing? I mean, this this is another delay. If if, if you're a believer, and clearly you are, that, that this project is, is, is not dead, it's just off the rails or it's hit pause or whatever analogy you want to use here. But this is yet another delay, and and delay, delay, delay just seems to be this. One of the things I'm 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 holding this on council's feet for. I understand I'm, I'm, your anger about the Ford government, and I share that anger too, because they're the ones that ultimately made the announcement. But council kicked this thing down the road for years. I mean, we probably should have been riding on this thing by now instead of simply talking about it. You know, the cheapest time to build this LRT system was ten years ago. The second cheapest time to build it is right now. The longer we wait, the more expensive it gets, and the more opportunity we miss out on. The more new development, the more new investment, uh, the more reshaping of this city to be a prosperous place that attracts people. We're missing out on that. And we're also sending a message to the market that, you know, maybe we're not such a reliable place to invest. I mean, this government talks about being open for business. um, And yet there was a competitive bidding process among three consortia who are experts in, in pricing these things. And they undercut that based on secret government numbers. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you would accuse, you know, some left-wing government of doing. Well, and, and according to Mr. Mancinelli, uh, he's talked to all three of those consortia, by the way, and they're still very interested in this. They have not walked away from the table, but they're not going to wait forever. Sure. And they, they recognize politics is a messy business. You know, I mean, you, you talk about delays, and I agree there's plenty of blame to go around, you know, all down the line for a project that was first announced in 2007, and could have been built in time for the Pan Am Games. You know, and we've missed one deadline, and we, we introduced one stall and one delay and one obstruction after another. Now here we are 12 years later. The way I look at this is this is just the latest in a long string of political delays and, uh, and, and complications that, you know, it's a big project. It's frightening. There's a lot of interest to raid in various different ways around it. It's going to take time to get it done, and we're going to have these kind of bumps along the road. The, the, the fact, and this is, I'm not saying anything brand new to people. I mean, the longer this thing goes on, as you mentioned, the cost is going to go up. And I mean, we saw that with the expressway debate, too. Uh, so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But it, it, at some point, some government is going to have to take this by the reins and simply say, look, I know that not everybody likes this, but it's in the best interest. Let's just get this done. And and I'm, I'm not seeing that. And the, the provincial government is really the one we should be looking to here because they're the ones that have that money on the table. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing to remember about that money, that billion dollars, there is no billion dollars. And Bill, you, you understand this as well as I do. There is no billion dollars sitting in an account somewhere waiting for Hamilton. 
the capital cost was actually going to be financed by the consortium that wins the contract to build it. So when they get that contract, they, they finance, design, build, and operate and maintain the system, and the province pays, you know, a, uh, a, a, you know, it's like a monthly operating cost to them for 30 years in order to cover all of those costs. You know, and we recover some of that through fair revenue. We recover some of it through new tax assessment on growth and development around the corridor. But it's not like there's a capital cost that is waiting to get spent. In fact, if the government wants to do something, excuse me, other than LRT, they're going to have to come up with that money somewhere. It's going to have to come out of some other budget or through a tax increase or through an increase to the debt. So this idea that, you know, we can get a billion dollars in stocking stuffers, that is not a realistic option. But it was pretty shady bookkeeping to begin with. I mean, when I talked to the minister the day after the announcement, and I said, did you include revenues? Or did the people that did these estimates include revenues? And she said, no. I said, well, how can you cost a project like that then? Well, exactly. And, you know, there's also the fact that they conflated capital and operating costs. These are two separate things. You know, to say it's going to cost $5.5 billion to build LRT, well, that's just wrong. Even if, they're, even if you take the numbers at face value, which I don't, it's it's really, really uh, disingenuous way of presenting the numbers. So the battle is not over as far as you're concerned? Absolutely not, no. This is this is CFL rules. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the, ball, the ball is still in play right until the last second clicks off, and we're not there yet. All right. Well, I was at the last CFL game this year, and I was not impressed with the result, and I'm hoping that we can overturn it when it comes to this. And, and again, without overstating this, because I think the arguments have been made on both sides uh, very clearly and for the longest time. I, I, there's nothing new coming into this debate right now. Uh, that that is going to sway anybody one way or another. I think people have pretty much made up their mind. Uh, and clearly, um, the, the government is, is going to have to consider Hamilton's long-term economic future here, not just their bottom line to try to cut costs. And and you and I talked about this the day that Ford announced that he was going to try to find $6 billion in savings out of the Ontario budget. I was worried at that point that he was going to look at this billion dollars right then and there and say, well, there's, there's the first one. And, and there are those people I know that opine that it was a matter of time. This is not of if they were going to do this, but when they were going to do this. But uh, you're absolutely right, though. Public pressure does seem to work against this government. Sure. And, you know, the one thing that I would say is all we're asking for for Hamilton is to be treated fairly. We want the same kind of treatment that, as the other cities that are getting these kinds of investments. In Mississauga, they had an 18-kilometer LRT line, fairly similar to ours. Um, you know, and when the final bids came in, they had, had budgeted at $1.4 billion. They, the, budget, the, the bids came in a little bit over budget. So Metrolinks removed a wraparound uh, that was going to go around uh, this, the Mississauga City Centre. They removed three stops and they deferred a pedestrian bridge. And so by scaling back the project very slightly, they brought it inside the funding envelope and they've now signed a 30-year contract and they're going ahead and building it. That's all we're asking for is, is for the same opportunity to let the process work. If the bids come in and they're way above budget, well, then we have to sit down and have that conversation. But we're not there yet. Let's let that competitive bidding process happen. The experts who are building these things will be the best ones to tell us how much it's really going to cost. Well, because that was one of the the, the, the stated points in this whole process, that if it was going to be a cost overrun, and we don't know that and don't know that until the bidding comes um, there was a, a possibility of a modified version of this. And we, you know, that was always on the table, and apparently the, the province seemed to have ignored that. Oh, yeah, it almost seems as though they wanted to bring these numbers in so they could cancel the project before we actually find out what the final numbers are, because I suspect those numbers will come in and they'll look pretty good. 
Well, uh, as, as much as the, the cancellation of the, the project was maybe the big story locally, and hopefully the reinstatement of it may be the big story of early 2020. We'll see how it goes. Ryan, as always, thank so. you so much for your contribution, uh, and not just for today, but through the whole course of the year as well. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Likewise, Bill. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Okay. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots to look forward to on the political scene in 2020. Obviously, there's going to be an auction uh, in the United States, and uh, that's obviously going to be a big, big factor in the determination of what's going to happen with uh, the most powerful nation in the world, uh, or there's going to be influence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here on this side of the border, I know we just had a federal election, and it is a minority government. Uh, highly unlikely there would be another federal election within the next year, in, the, in 2020. But there will be a new leader for the uh, federal conservative party, that's for sure. Andrew Scheer uh, stepped down, or announced he was stepping down anyway late last week. And a lot of speculation about where that's going to go. By the way, the Ontario Liberals will also be selecting a leader next year. And uh, that's a pretty important thing considering the beating they took in the last election. Uh, who's going to lead them out of the wilderness? Joining us to talk about this is Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Hi, Henry. How are you doing today? Just fine. Uh, talk to us about the conservative leadership, first of all. I mean, uh, there was speculation the night of the election that uh, that Shear was going to get uh, dumped or was going to quit, whatever the case might be, and, and a bunch of names started to get it floated back and forth even then. That's for sure. I mean, there's a, not, a lot of names uh, floating around. I, I, my own view is that, well, there's two things we could say. If they essentially want to go and try to um, win the next election or do very, very well in the next election, they should probably pick somebody who appeals to, to, uh, to Ontario, uh, a good, solid Ontario MP or maybe a cabinet minister in the provincial government, somebody with a high profile like that where the people of uh, Ontario who have the largest number of seats in the, uh, in the country feel comfortable with. But the history of this party, uh, of the Conservative Party, which is really the history beginning with the uh, Reform Party under Preston Manning out west, essentially this is a Western party. It has basically had Western leaders, uh, has a Western focus, and that's a lot, that is a big problem for, for the party and why it, it generally hasn't done well in Ontario and in Quebec. I'm wondering if, if they see that as a problem and as a priority and if they're going to try to do something about it. That they don't. They haven't talked about it. Of course, is a rather explosive issue inside the party because sure. there's a lot of people who believe the new Conservative Party, compared to the PCs they used to have, really was a party that has as a special um, concern to speak for the West, even though it's no longer, you know, the Reform Party or the Alliance Party. But it is a party that is supposed to be more sensitive to Western interests. The problem in the country is that the Western interests, particularly, we're talking about. Saskatchewan and uh, and Alberta, maybe a little bit of uh, Manitoba, uh, is really there's there's not a lot of seats there compared to all the seats that you have in Ontario and Quebec and 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 East. So the, it it is a real problem for the party. Is they're focusing, they want to focus on a region that they figure has not been treated well, but it's a, a small part of the country in terms of seats, and uh, that's their dilemma. The, but a, but a pragmatic party, a party that really really wants to win power, I think has to find somebody who's going to be run strong in Ontario. Well, and maybe the first Stephen Harper mandate was the best example of that in the 2005-2006 election. He pretty much poached the Mike Harris government, didn't he? I mean, he got what, Jim Flaherty, uh, John Baird, right. Tony uh, Clement. Uh, I'm probably missing one or two, but a number of them that had success here in Ontario and simply stepped up to the federal level and had success there. 
I think a lot of people would forget that that really uh, Harper, who d- did have a minority government and did had a ma- had a majority government, uh, basically was helped out by a lot of other people. And th- as you pointed out, there the three strong former cabinet ministers in uh, in in Ontario. Uh, Jim Flaherty, who financed Mr. Minister Long, serving finance minister, probably the longest in the country's history, uh, extremely popular, personable guy. Great tragedy for uh, all of us and for the Conservative Party, of course, is when he passed away. Uh, then, then you, you know, the uh, John Baird, a lot of people have talked about him and pushed him. He's still on the scene, but he shows a great deal of reluctance to take over the leadership of the party, although he acts like almost like an elder statesman now. It's hard to think of John as an elder statesman, but he, he acts that way. Uh, and uh, Tony Clement, of course, made some very bad personal choices, and he's out of the running of any kind of leadership. So they've lost the the three strong people who came over with Harper. One of those should have taken over the party after Harper and they didn't. And uh and um, so that that I think is 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 the big problem for this for this party. They they don't have a strong person. Um you know, they do have you know a couple of uh, maybe MPs who might we had Mr. O'Toole from the west end of uh the, the greater Toronto area, who came in third, I believe, in the last leadership race. I think he would be solid, although he's never had, you know, he may not be as well known as as, as some of the other, some other people who might be mentioned. But uh, somebody has to appeal to this province. But I, I'm really skeptical they're, they are going to get somebody from Ontario or somebody who really appeals to Ontario because of this strong uh, Western orientation. Well, another name that came about uh, over the weekend, of course, uh, from uh, CTV's question period over the weekend on Sunday was uh, Pierre Prolivier. Uh, who's yes. been in politics since Harper first got elected in 2005. He's, he's almost the, the antithesis of Andrew Scheer, though, isn't he, Henry? I mean, uh, he's, he's brash, he's outspoken, uh, he's uh, uh, very, very uh, aggressive in, in the House of Commons. And uh, is, is that the kind of guy that they need? I don't think so. I think I think the people, you know, conservatives in Ontario and the, and the average voter in Ontario, somewhere who's somewhere in the center, uh, has conservative streaks and things they like. You know, there are conservative values they have, but in terms of personality, I think I think they essentially want somebody who is not brash, who is uh, basically not spoken, but has a certain amount of gravitas and seriousness about them. That looks like a leader who is calm. Uh, but and and steady, and uh, that that is who I think the the Ontario uh, electorate will uh, you know will respond to. Uh, so that you know I that that's that's where I think they've got to go. I think they, you know, a lot of people say, well, Ontario is a boring place. The people in Ontario are boring, but that's there's you know essentially our, we're basically a fairly civilized middle of the road type of. Uh, voter here in the province and that's that's who they got to go after and uh, and somebody who has experience that can you know convince the voters well I know what I'm doing because I have I have some sort of experience and that's why I mentioned somebody who's been a cabinet minister in an Ontario uh, PC uh, PC government or someone who's an MP who has has a solid you know seems to be like a solid person and that's the one that I would go for if I was you know in that party looking for a leader yeah there are a couple of uh, well current MPs that uh, are being bandied about too uh, Michelle Rempel and uh, uh, right. also Candace Bergen uh, but again uh, I'm, I'm not so sure if they're the answer to this. What, what I, you know, I've always wondered. What about Lisa Raitt, who was defeated in the last election, of course, 
yeah. in her writing. She'd been a longstanding, but she was highly regarded within the party, and I, I think highly regarded in Parliament in general. But uh, once you're defeated, are, are you? Do you have? Do you have to just kind of sit one or two of these out, or do you jump right back into the ring? Well, I think more importantly, I've watched her with a few interviews on TV and uh, and uh, particularly on the agenda with Steve Pakin. And uh, I I really get the sense in terms of what she says uh, explicitly, how she acts, and her body language. She's not rich. She doesn't want to go for the leadership. That that's what I pick up from her. Yes, she's a very interesting person. Uh, I think she would be a solid leader. But I, but at the same time, you've got to really want to be leader because you have to put up with a lot. You know, you have a a lot of a lot of things you have to do. There's a lot of sacrifices you have to make. She has you know she has a husband she who is who is has problems that needs to be looked after, and uh, she's done a magnificent job with them even when she was very active in politics. But I think that uh, she doesn't really look like to me a person who really wants this job. That this is not a challenge at this stage of her life that she wants. One of the other names, of course, is the former interim leader, I guess, Ronna Ambrose, who took over when Stephen Harper stepped down. Uh, right. And she's an interesting case, too. I mean, she was appointed to Harper's first government. I think it was the Environment Ministry. And uh, it did not go well. And there was a lot of no. speculation that she was actually going to get booted out of cabinet altogether. Harper never did that. But she, she seemed to grow and, and really, I think, improve her own performance through the course of her time in Parliament. Yeah, well, I think she, you know, I, I, she has a lot of very good characteristics. But again, I don't think she would appeal to the people in Ontario that strongly. I just, I just don't think that, you know, she'll have that kind of appeal. I may be wrong, but I just get the sense that, you know, she, she wouldn't. Uh, that would be the comparison with Lisa Raitt. Lisa Raitt would, would have an Ontario appeal. She would be seen as somebody who really understands and, 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 and could represent the, the people of Ontario and also pull the country together. But the Ambrose, I think, I don't think she would have that appeal. At least that's my sense in Ontario. And, uh, you know, if they don't, if the party doesn't do that, I think it's going to have a long, you know, a long period in the wilderness that is the, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the political wilderness. And I would go back in its history, uh, particularly in the PC party, and we saw how there were different leaders uh, of, the, uh, of the PC party for a long time against, uh, um, you know, after... Uh, you know, for the latter, well, good part of the latter part of the uh, the 20th century, and we just saw it wasn't until finally you got someone like uh, Brian Mulroney who was uh, able to appeal to Ontario, even though he was from Quebecer, but he he was from Quebec and he could appeal to both provinces. Of course, he was very fluent in both languages, but he certainly appealed to the people in Ontario. He understood, I think, the values of the people of of Ontario. Um, he was a conservative, but a progressive conservative, and there, and he was able to win two two big elections because he understood the population. But uh, so many of the other people who came out of the West or are out of the Maritimes, like Stanfield, just really couldn't, you know, really couldn't get, uh, you know, in tune with how with what what the people in Ontario would like out of a out of a leader. Henry, what about uh, an outsider, which seems to be something that seems to be in vogue with a lot of political parties? I mean, the guy in the White House is a, a political outsider, never run for office. Well, mm-hmm. technically didn't get down into the race again. Kevin O'Leary tried to run for the uh, conservative leadership last time. Uh, is, is there somebody waiting in the wings from in, in that genre that, that you might jump in here and, and, and grab everybody's attention? I don't, I don't really see that there's anybody who, you know, an outsider right now like that. Uh <laughs> I think uh, Kevin O'Leary looked like he, he had some interest at one point, but he's, that's not going anywhere uh, anymore. And, uh, yeah, I just don't see 
who there, you know, who outside uh, would really be able to do it. I mean, some people might look like it's somebody who's successful in the business community, but, you know, oftentimes it's really hard to make a big jump from being a very successful business person, usually a pres- someone who's been president of a major corporation or two, and, and into being prime minister. That just the, the, the logic of the situation they're in is so, so very much different, and, and, and yeah, they, it's just very hard for them to make that work. So you need somebody who... You know, for the conservatives, it would be nice if there was somebody who would bounce back and forth, who had done some government work, maybe even the bureaucracy, but also been successful in the private sector. That would be very nice and who is very prominent now. But they, there isn't just there isn't somebody out there, though, that we could point to that I think would have those characteristics and, and uh, would be willing to, to do the uh, job of being leader of the opposition. Got a couple of minutes left. Let's uh, change gears and come down to the provincial politics uh, once again in the arena. Uh, the Ontario Liberals are going to have to find a new leader, and uh, sooner right. than later, of course. Uh, they were decimated in the last provincial election and uh, don't even have official party status, of course, because of the uh, the, the, yeah. the, the hit that they took on that. I, I guess the obvious question, I'm not trying to be flippant here, who, who'd want the job at this stage? Oh, it's a, it's a terrible job. They don't have any money. Uh, they're not even an official party. Uh, it's going to be a, a tre- tremendous job to uh, to do. Uh, you know, maybe maybe they would be building up the party for the next leader. <laughs> they might spend <laughs> two elections, two or three elections, and then when they go, they'll hand it over to somebody else who be who will who will reap the benefit of their hard work. Uh, yeah, and then I mean, I've got a, a number of messages. I have a lot of con, you know, a lot of people, you know, send oh, sure. emails and talk to me, and and the liberals. Who, who are interested, in, you know, in this. Basically, I get sort of the impression that most of them, not all of them, I must say, but most of them seem to be pretty, you know, feel, a, you know, a bit morose about about their choices, not because they're not fine people, and there are very fine people running for that leadership, but they don't, but seeing somebody who could really, you know, lift up the party very, very dramatically uh, and, and get them back on track at least to get them an official party status, uh, maybe get them leader, you know, to get in opposition, and then maybe two elections from now uh, become the government. And they just—I don't think they feel they have anyone out there who can do that. And they add to the fact that uh, they've got to have somebody who's a, bi- a big fundraiser, somebody who's going to have to be going around the the whole, you know, province, visiting all the constituencies, you know, doing doing really hard hard labor. And I—they uh, don't. And I, I think there's a lot of pessimism about somebody who can really do that and and really get a reception all around the pro, all around the province. I mean, we have some very good people, particularly from Ontario, from Toronto, want to run. But there's always a danger that somebody from Toronto is just you know fe- feared by everybody else outside of Toronto, <laughs> and that is that is the big problem. There are good quality people in Toronto. But they're, they, I just wonder whether they would be, be, be able to, you know, get that support in the rest of the province. It, it's generally probably best if you have a leader who comes from a good-sized city, but not Toronto, you know. So a good city for, for the, uh, for the, well, for e- even even out in the suburbs. So Bill Davis out in Brampton, yeah. of course, was was okay. And we, you know, having leaders who come from a place like. Uh, um, you know, um, London is is always great. There's a proper size city, but it's far enough from Toronto, so nobody's going to be very suspicious about the person coming from that from southwestern Ontario. But uh, people coming from Toronto, I think it's just going to be a hard sell 
to uh, to other people and and I just think the um, but I do I do think there's a lot of disillusionment and uh, I'll just say that very very quickly uh, with the present government uh, which uh, which you think naturally would be the party of business but I think they have been really made a terrible mistake uh, in canceling the LRT in Hamilton not for the more obvious reasons that people talk about, but there are a lot of Toronto investors who put money into the city who are buying properties and starting to build things on King and Main and uh, even onto Barton Street, although we haven't seen any construction, but buying stuff. And it is really, you know, has really negatively affected the business community. You know, certainly they've been attacked by the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, which is never a good sign. For So I, th- I, think, uh, so the, I think the business community is looking for a leader. I think they Lost, lost faith in uh, in um, Doug Ford, and I think they are looking for some somebody who's going to basically help business, you know, succeed and keep the in, and basically keep their commitments and promises. So there's an opportunity for somebody. I mean, if a liberal came along who could, you know, really uh, who would quickly get the support of the business community, and, and not only in Hamilton but, of course, in the uh, in the Toronto area. Then, then, then I think maybe the Liberal Party could rebound a lot faster. So they have. To, I'm not sure that any of those people who are running now can get really, you know, get the uh, get the business community on their side. But there, there is an opportunity there if if that someone comes out of the woodwork who can do that. It, but it's going to have to be somebody pretty special. And by the way, to put this in perspective, and you and I have had this discussion in the past. I mean, all three of the major political parties have been in this situation before, where they almost right. get wiped out in an election, and you figure, okay, that's the end of the party. And uh, they, they do rise from the ashes, but it takes a long time. And they're, they're really going to need like a Moses to lead these guys out of the uh, wilderness right now, because everything you've talked about there, uh, you, you know, the, about raising funds and, and getting the, the, you know, the confidence back, it, it all has to do with the leader. I mean, nobody's going to write a check just because, well, that's the liberals. But if it's a charismatic leader that they think can actually do something, you, right. you might get them to open up the checkbook. That's right. We know, especially the business community, yeah, exactly. people want to be on the winning side. They want to be on the winning side, absolutely. They have to have confidence. This is this is a person who's going to be a winner. So they, they have to have that confidence. But I think at the same time, they have to address this whole notion of trust of, of the uh, Ontario business community in the government and uh as I said, it's a golden opportunity for somebody if they if they can convince people they are a winner, they can be charismatic, they understand both business and and the government. Uh, so there is an opportunity there, but whether anybody's going to take advantage of that, I don't know. It's going to so be very interesting, twenty twenty, isn't it? Yeah, that's for sure. On both sides, Henry. As always, thanks so much for this. All the best. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and okay, we'll talk I, again I, soon. You have a very happy Christmas yourself. Take okay. care, Henry Bye-bye. Jason. Of course, from uh, McMaster University Political Science Department. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. LRT still in the news. Uh, obviously, the, one of the big stories was the cancellation of the LRT project in Hamilton. That happened a week or so ago. Uh, one of the big stories in 2020 is going to be. This is a, a developing story. Is what are we going to do? Uh, is there a plan B? What's what's going to happen? I mean, we understand that transit is still a key uh, issue in this community, as it is in every community, and so is climate change. Well, there's a, a individual, friend, good friend of mine, that uh, is tackling both issues at the same time. Uh, this is called a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to impact climate emergency in Hamilton, electrify transit. 
And uh, Lee Fairbanks has, uh, has been a, a public advocate for a number of different causes over the years. And uh, transit and, and obviously the environment, are the, you're marrying these two. First of all, welcome to the show. Good to see you again after such a long time. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, it's great to be here. How'd you come up with this idea? I mean, you, you're, like I say, you're off in about 16 different directions doing <laughs> very busy projects. Yeah. Uh, this obviously took a little bit of time. I mean, people are going to say, oh, this is a reaction to the announcement from last week. Uh, this, no, this was I, not a new idea for no, you. No, actually, I, I think my biggest disappointment with the LRT cancellation is that the province did it, and we didn't get a chance for the city to do it, because based on what I'm going to show you today, the city was on target to actually overturn LRT probably in a month or so. We've been working with councillors on this behind the scenes, and the support was unanimous. So. The way it started, uh, I have a good friend, uh, Jim Sweetman, and uh, he's a retired engineer, lives in Dundas. He's involved a lot more heavily than I am in environmental projects and climate change and uh, a lot of community work. And we meet every month for coffee and we chit-chat about different issues. And so this climate change has been in the forefront for a few months now for us. And by accident, I came across a study that was done in 2017 by the University of Toronto that just kind of slid under the radar. And it said that these major transit projects like subways and LRTs have a tremendous impact on climate change because they're massive projects. We're looking at probably the biggest engineering project in the history of Hamilton. Oh, sure. So in those six years, we're going to be producing millions of tons of greenhouse gas emissions. And that flies in the face of what's really the defining issue of our generation is climate change. Mm -hmm. So when we put two and two together... We started to think that how can anybody support LRT when it's such a massive hit against our climate when that's our number one priority? So what the study said was that it can take between 10 and 30 years of usage before you get the payback on the climate damage you did during construction. So whether if you had the six-year construction, 10 years, minimum 10 years payback, you're looking at 2036 before we break even on this project. And every single level of government has made it clear that climate change is our priority. So we put two and two together and started talking. We, we ran this past a few councillors just to see if we were on track. We did a little more research about the numbers to verify the benefits of electric transit and could it be done, what was the cost and so on. And we started running it past people and, and they were blown away. They said, wow, this is new information. If we had had this information two years ago, we never would have approved LRT. It would never Because, pass. I was just talking to you, reminding you, I guess, about uh, you know the dialogue that's gone on over the years here in the city, and, and I guess the Bible at one point was a report called Rapid Ready, a 700-page yes. report that was done by the city, with consultants, of course. But the only alternative they really talked about uh, was bus rapid transit. Yes. Or LRT. It was either yes. or. They didn't, they didn't talk about it, in, not in any great detail, about any other possibilities. So... Where did this come from? Well, it, it came first from Jim Sweetman. And yeah. He was the guy that was talking to me about, we've got to make an impact here. We've got to change the way we do business. We've got to change our future. So just so, trying to apply that logic. So much information, you know, climate um, parades and disputes, debates. Everybody's talking about climate change. But the question I always ask is, like, where's the action? What, how are we going to actually do anything about this rather than talk? So... When, when you put that together, you, you know, the impact on climate change and then the plus on buses. So you're looking at – so what we said is like if we don't do LRT, how do we reimagine the use of a billion dollars? How could we best spend a billion dollars? And, and Premier, Premier Ford two years ago said you can spend on anything you want. You can spend it on transit, infrastructure or whatever. But that seemed to slide under the radar. And as you say, all people talked about was, well, does that mean buses or trains on the LRT – on that route, the B line? Yeah. 
And, and we said, let's reimagine the whole thing. What if we looked at the blast system that the city of Hamilton created, this rapid ready, the blast, they had five different lines they wanted rapid bus transit on. And then we started thinking, well, why don't we get rid of buses altogether and go with electric buses? So we did the research and electric buses are, they, they, they release in Ontario, they release about 60% less carbon than a diesel bus. And they're 30% more efficient to maintain. So once you have an electric bus, you actually save money every year on your operating costs. So we looked at the cost of it. There are roughly a million dollars a piece, and we have 260 buses in Hamilton. So for $260 million, we could replace every bus with electric buses and still have three-quarters of a billion dollars left to spend on infrastructure and more expansion of transit. So the numbers are massively in favor of going with electric buses. And then we looked at the city of Hamilton. Just re- last week, two weeks ago, they released their first study. Nine months they took to put together all the numbers of climate change. And the city of Hamilton Corporation, 44% of the emissions that are created by the city of Hamilton Corporation come from transportation. And 75% of that comes from the bus system. So overall, by changing the diesel buses and the, and the gas buses to electric, we would re- reduce the total city of Hamilton greenhouse gas by 33% instantly. So you have a massive climate change boost versus 16 to 25, 30 years of payback on an LRT. You have an instant plus with buses and you have operating savings and it's fully funded already by the, by the province. So we went to the province. We went to Donna Skelly's office and we said, what can we, what's, what can we do about this? And they, and they basically said, well, whatever the city wants, the city's going to get. It's, we gave you the money to do what you want. So we didn't know they were going to cancel LRT last week. That was a surprise. So we have at this point talked to five councillors. We have five councillors saying, when you bring this to council in January, we'll approve it. And here's a list of four other councillors that we're 100% sure will we'll approve it as well. That, that's nine out of 17. That's a passing vote right there. What's what's the, the sell point on this, though, Lee? What's, what's going to win these people over, win the hearts and minds? Well, I think it's climate. Climate is the number one defining issue. In every level of government, everybody from federal, provincial, municipal, across the entire world is saying we need to do things differently. We need to lower our greenhouse gas emissions, and we can do that instantly. That's, that's, that's going to be the, the legacy of this council is what are they going to do about climate change? This is, I think, the biggest single thing they could do to impact positively climate change, and it's fully funded, and it provides an operating savings for years to come, and it impacts the whole city. The whole, greenhouse gases across the whole city noise reduction across the whole city, health benefits across the whole city, transit um, support across the whole city. So every council looks at it and says, this benefits my people in my world. It's not a mountain versus downtown. It's not are you living on the line. It impacts everybody in a positive way, and the numbers are overwhelmingly in favor of it. So when we present it to councillors, I don't see how anybody can stand up against it. You know, there are My disappointment is we didn't get to everybody before Ford made this yeah. announcement because if you notice, very few councillors actually jumped up and down in anger. I, I was going to bring that up. <laughs> it, it's been a week. It seems like it's been a year since that decision was made. But one of the things that I heard from a, a lot of people that are very, very pro LRT is that where is council on this? Exactly. How come they're not speaking up? And now I'm finding out why. Uh, they 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 already had a plan B. They have the pl- like five of well, them it's already not their have plan, a- but. Well, five of them have already said, bring it. Bring it as soon as you can. And so it was just a case of how quickly could we get to everybody. So the ones that are making the big noise haven't seen this plan. And and including the nine, take the nine that we feel we already are sure to get. In the other eight, there's three or four that have made made it their personal mission 
to have an impact on climate change. When we well, show well, them the, the whole numbers, council has. they voted for that unanimously. Yeah. When does that ever happen in Hamilton? So we're pretty sure we would have 13 votes before we ever went to council. And then the other four or five, are they going to stand against that or are they going to look at it and say, you know, we have new information. What we're saying is like, forget about LRT. That was an old debate and it's done. We have new information that changes. I talked to a counselor, and, and she said, I would change my mind. I, I have the right as a counselor. If I have new information, I feel comfortable changing my mind. She said, the information you've given me, I will reverse my vote because this is overwhelmingly intelligent. This makes so much more sense than LRT. So we were going to get it done anyway. So all this fighting, it's disappointing to see it happen because we could have avoided all of it. And so why aren't other cities doing this then? Why, why aren't they converting their fleets? Well, they all are, but it's all about In- money. Incrementally. It, because of the money. They don't so, have the money. So the game changer for you is the fact that the province said money's on the table. Here it is. A billion dollars. Go all electric. We would be the first major city in North America to be all electric. Can you imagine what that would do for the image? We're trying to attract investment in our city. And the LRT, would, they talked about residential, building residential condos all along the line. But there's not a lot of tax revenue from residential. We need industrial. But industries are looking for innovative innovative cities to move to. Innovative industries want innovative cities. If we, we become the first city to go all electric in transit, that will ripple right across North America. And businesses everywhere will be looking at Hamilton saying, wow, these guys are ahead of the curve. What a brilliant, enlightened city. I want to build my business here. I want to move my factory here. That's where the tax revenue will come from. Now, I don't want to take the window to your sales uh, because you're going to present to council. And I, I, but there's obviously some particulars here. What's the system look like? Is it just the same system we have now with, with better vehicles? Well, instantly, all you're doing is changing the buses. There is some infrastructure. You need the recharging stations. Sure. So that's factored into the price. So uh, we have more than enough money to build the big garage they want. We have all the money to build all the charging stations. There's two different kinds of chargers. One is called a trickle charger, and it takes about four hours to charge. The other one charges en route. There's also solar panels being developed so the buses can charge themselves on sunny days. So all of the infrastructure, there is some infrastructure that has to be built. Obviously, they've got to be ordered. But that's factored in the cost you talked about. All factored in. We have more than enough. We have leftover money. You couldn't spend a billion dollars on this. Because one of the selling points, as you know, about the LRT cost in the the program, as described by the previous government anyway, uh, was, yeah, they're going to tear up the roads, but they're going to fix all the infrastructure under those roads. Uh, It's going to be a new and improved system that's uh, going to go right across the city. That's not going to happen under your plan, though. Well, it's interesting infrastructure. I had this conversation with with Fred a couple of years ago. It was supposed to be $60 million worth of infrastructure. And then I said, well, out of a billion dollars, that's not really enough to to justify doing it. And then the numbers started to escalate a bit, but they just rebuilt Lock Street, reconstruction of Lock Street, total reconstruction. And it was just over $5 million. It was about a kilometer. So if you look at 14 kilometers of infrastructure, you're looking at about $70 million. Now, some of that was recently done. So they're tearing up perfectly good infrastructure to replace it. So the net gain is closer to $50 million out of a billion dollars. We have more than $50 million left over if they want to do infrastructure in the parts of, of the road that needs it. But there's other roads all over the city that need infrastructure just as badly as King Street. So, I mean, obviously one of the big selling points uh, is this is less intrusive. Absolutely. It doesn't destroy anyone's business. It doesn't destroy anyone's lifestyle. It's immediate. Its impact is positive from day one. There's, it's just a win-win-win, and every time we talk to people about it, they go, this is a win-win-win. We have to do this. Forget LRT. There's, that's the old debate. We have new information. Let's just leave it aside. So Ford did, did us all a great favor by taking the hit. 
he made the decision. He canceled it. He's taking the flack. This is a great opportunity for the city to step up and say, we already have a plan. It's called BLAST. Let's do BLAST. Let's do it with electric buses, and let's be the first city in North America. So, to so you're, you're marrying an existing concept, the BLAST network, uh, which was never funded properly, by the way. Never by the funded. City. Well, and again, because they don't have the cash. They don't have the money. Yeah. yeah. And you're marrying that with the newest technology. Absolutely. And saying blast uh, probably wouldn't have happened under the old system because they're never going to be able to have that lump sum money to do never. this. Uh, but now all of a sudden we can basically, in in well, a very short period of time, transition into this whole new system. Absolutely. And be a world leader. Absolutely. How can you complain? So what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? <laughs> and then that's why I'm saying we would have done this. We would have. I'm, I'm 99% sure that we would have got this through council in January or February, and everybody would be So you, you think then that there was an inevitability, notwithstanding what happened with the government here, that, no, that council would have reversed their, their opinion about LRT early absolutely. in the new year? How could they stand up and say, yeah, yeah, climate change, we don't care? They can't, they can't do that. So this is a climate change initiative built around transit. So it solves two problems. It solves the transit issue. Immediately we do the blast network, we improve service, all the benefits, and it has a huge climate change impact as well. And it's fully funded. It has a great budgetary impact. It's just a win-win-win. So how much is left in the kitty if we do this according to your plan? Well, it depends how if, fancy. If we're working on that $1.2 billion. You know, if you, if you start with uh, $260 billion for the existing buses, the blast plan has a, is asking for 100 new buses. So that's $100 million. They want the big fancy garage. I don't know how they're going to spend $240 million on that, but that's oh, the they, they could find a way. So that's 600 That leaves you $400 million still to spend. Do you, here's one of the really cool things about electric buses is they can go inside buildings. So when you build, like McMaster has a terminal, it can be inside the building. You could drive that bus right into the McMaster and let people off inside the building. You could go from Eastgate inside the building all the way to McMaster inside the building and never step out foot, never get in the snow, the ice, the, the heat, anything. You could go into Jackson Square. You could go into Limeridge Square. You could build this so it would go right into the mall. It's, it's, you could go right into hospitals. You could drive people right into the lobby. It's brilliant. Now, those things would cost more. You could enclose every terminal. You could add coffee shops and cultural centers. You could have concerts going on there. You could even build an arena or you could on take, one of those routes. Or you could take the $400 million, hopefully, if you negotiate it, and put it into public housing, which is a massive need. Yeah. So That's the, where I'd like to see it go. So there are options. There uh, are, this, now, this is not going to be unanimous because I know one or two people on that council that, sure. are, that are married to LRT, exactly. and they're not, they're not moving. Well, but, we'll see. But as we talked about in one of the other segments, uh, not, there's never unanimity in any of these projects. I mean, to, to, the, the fact that they all voted unanimously to, you know, to recognize the climate crisis and emergency that we have here. I mean, if, if we ask these guys right now to vote whether or not today is Monday, it'd be a split vote. <laughs> but, you know, so so for, for you to get the consensus, even if not the unanimity out here, is, is really remarkable. You've been, been around here a long time, and you've been working with council on a lot of different initiatives. Yeah. And it's, it's like herding cats sometimes, but you, they all, a lot of them seem to be on the same page here. Well, they are, and I'm, I'm more optimistic than you. About, and I'm more optimistic than Jim, my, my partner Jim, on this. I I believe in these people as people, that they will do the right thing when given the right information. LRT was difficult to choose because for every good reason to do it, there was a good reason not to do it. So it was very split. But every once in a while, you get a program that is so 100% that everybody sees the light and go, you know, let go of whatever dream you have of, you know, having a train and whatever. Just look at the numbers and realize that this is what benefits everybody. It's 
So I'm optimistic. Yeah, I'm optimistic that, that we would get 100% support for this. Now, you've talked to, to the elected officials. You've talked to some city councilors and, and MPP Donna Skelly. Uh, have you talked to the staff, the transportation, the, the, the HS, the bus department themselves? No, no, we haven't. We didn't get that far. Yeah. Obviously, there were a lot of groups that we wanted to meet with before we went public. This is actually the first time we've released this publicly, and we're only doing it because Ford canceled LRT. So it seemed like we should step forward and say, okay, let's reimagine the billion dollars now before we get lost. And we've got groups out there saying we're going to bring LRT back, you know. Yeah. We're, we're going to get we're going to get studies, our own studies. We're going to dispute the numbers. There's no need to do that anymore. Let's look at how to reimagine. Let's look at a better plan and just move forward, change the world in a positive way. If we're going to cover all the bases or if you're going to cover all the bases, more importantly, probably not a bad idea to talk to the transportation minister about this. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, as Mr. I Mulroney, say, who was in town last week, yeah, and, and she was on our list. We we started with Donna Skelly's office, talked to the, to Grant McLean there, wanted to confirm that if city voted for it, we wouldn't have a roadblock there, and and they were very supportive. And then we asked them to speak to the environment minister, the transit minister, and, and Premier Ford himself. And we were just waiting for feedback on that when they announced that they were canceling the whole thing. So now you mentioned that your partner in this endeavor here is is the engineer. He's he's the yeah. the. the the, uh, the guy who's developing this right now, uh, this is going to be put up on a pedestal and people are going to take shots at it, obviously. I yeah. mean, that, that's part of the political process as sure. well. Can you withstand that? Can, can the concept withstand that? Well, I think so. That's what we've been doing for the last six weeks. We've been circulating this information to, and verifying our facts and figures. And, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of fine-tuning between the actual numbers because some of those numbers are coming, for instance, from Edmonton. Well, Edmonton has an electric bus project. Most big cities are already buying electric buses for what they can afford. But when you look at the uh, environmental impact, it's from the it's from birth to death of the equipment. So it's the construction. What does it cost to build the, the bus in terms of greenhouse gases? What does it cost to decommission it and get rid of it? What does it cost to operate it? So in Edmonton, for instance, their hydro is largely created by coal. So it's dirty hydro. So the any bus that's any bus that's um, being operated by electricity in Edmonton has a higher greenhouse gas impact than one in Ontario. So some of these numbers are going to be adjusted according to Hamilton versus Edmonton versus Stockholm versus China. There's a city in China. This is the other thing that really excited me about this. China is already doing this. There's a city called Shenhen in China that has six, I think it's 16, I'm going to say 16,000 buses. And they're all electric, every single one of them. And 90% of the buses, electric buses in service today are in China. They're way ahead of us on this. They are switching all of their buses over to electric. So so there's a track record. We can look at the way it's being done all over the world and verify all of the questions we have we can answer because it's already in the marketplace. Have you got a date before uh, that you're going to go before council? No, I don't. (laughs) Talk to the – that's going to be a very interesting meeting. Uh, and it's been a very interesting session with you here today, too. Uh, this may well be the alternative that some people have been looking for. Uh, thanks for sending this over to me. Thanks for coming in today. And uh, great to see you again. And uh, good luck with the project. We'll see how council rolls out with this in the next little while. Thanks, And so. uh, all the best for a uh, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and the family. Thank you. You too. Leif Fairbanks. Uh, you're going to hear a lot more of that name, I guess, in the weeks and months ahead. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.